This is the Foreign Language Mastery Podcast. I'm your host, John Fotheringham. In today's show, I interview Steve Kaufman, the author of The Linguist, A Language Learning Odyssey, the creator of Link.com, and a super polyglot fluent in 11 languages. For a transcript and show notes, go to languagemastery.com. Here is the phone interview recorded on March 10th, 2009. So what I'd like to uh, pick your brain about sure. is the article that you posted on Pick the Brain. Uh, seven common misconceptions about language learning. I think that that has a lot of good stuff in there to help my listeners get started with Mandarin and sort of avoid the common pitfalls that most language learners encounter. All right, then. Well, the first one that I hear so often is that language learning is difficult. We hear that, particularly here in North America. I think we hear it in countries like Japan. And the problem normally is that the person isn't sufficiently motivated. So language learning is not difficult. We all learned our first language. And I think it's also made difficult because of the way it's taught in schools, where people are forced to try to perform in the language at a point where they have no chance of performing in the language. If we learn in a natural way, mostly listening and reading, and if we enjoy doing it, uh, it's not difficult. Well, the second misconception is that you have to have a gift for learning languages. I speak 10 languages, and so people say, oh, well, you just have a gift. I don't, I don't believe that, and I'll tell you why. If you go to countries like Sweden or Holland or Singapore, everybody speaks more than one language. It's not a big deal there. I don't believe that Singaporeans and Swedes have some kind of a gene that makes them more gifted for languages. And I've also noticed that here in North America, where we have foreign athletes, yeah, Russian hockey player, uh, after a year or two, the Russian hockey player speaks English much more fluently than the average teaching assistant we have from Russia <laughs> at our universities, who no one can understand. And, and the point is that the hockey player is in with his buddies on the team. He's in an environment where he just has to communicate. He's happy. Uh, he's just doing it. Uh, whereas the college professor is more, you know, academic and uh, probably a little more inhibited. And uh, I don't believe that hockey players have a gene that makes them better language learners than college professors. So I don't think that you need to have a gift to learn languages. What is true is that uh, having the right attitude can help. And just willing to let go and, and listen and communicate. And, and the more languages you learn, the better you get at it. So me learning my 10th language, Russian, uh, I'm a better language learner at 63 than I was at 16, 17 when I wanted to conquer French. All right. Number three. Well, yeah, that people say, well, you know, if I only live where the language is spoken, then I'd learn it or I could learn it. Now, yeah, of course it's an advantage to live surrounded by the language. But it, it's not a condition. And uh, I learned Mandarin in Hong Kong, which is not a, a Mandarin-speaking uh, area. And in fact, when I lived there in 1968-69, you, you didn't hear Mandarin anywhere, just about. So I learned it despite the fact that I was not surrounded by the language. And on the other side of the picture, I mean, uh, I lived in Japan for nine years. Most North Americans, Europeans living in Japan did not learn Japanese. And we're all familiar with immigrants who live here in North America for 20 or 30 years and never learn to speak English. So it can help to live where the language is spoken. Not living where the language is spoken doesn't prevent you from learning the language. And there's no guarantee that if you live where the language is spoken, 
that you learn to speak it. Yeah, I can attest to that. There are hundreds and hundreds of foreigners I encounter here who have yeah, been here many years and barely get by uh, in the language. And I would say that it just reiterates what you said in point one and two. You know, they think it's difficult, so they don't even try. Or they think that they're not good at languages, so they don't try. Exactly. And and the thing is, today with the iPod MP3 player, you can literally carry your immersion around with you, and you can listen all the time. Oh, yeah. I'm plugged in 24-7. <laughs> they're fused into my ears now. All right. Number four. Well, this business about you have to be a child, that there's a critical period and all of this. I think there is a critical period for your native language, when native language forms. But uh, there's all kinds of research that shows that our brains retain their plasticity. Adults who suddenly become blind can learn Braille, which is a language. Children have some advantage in that they're less inhibited. But children don't have as wide a vocabulary as adults. So, I mean, here I am. I've learned Russian in three years. I can now read Tolstoy essentially with no trouble. I don't think a three-year-old child could put in three years into Russian and learn to read Tolstoy. So uh, children have, have, have a number of advantages, mostly the fact that they're, they're less inhibited. They're not afraid to be childish. Uh, you know, the, the, the educated person says, I don't want to, you know, they're, they're reluctant to speak another language because they, they think they sound like a fool because they can't express themselves. And children don't worry about that. So uh, I think that's not an issue. You can learn a language at any age. All right. Well, the next one is uh, <laughs> one of the most important and one of the hardest uh, for I think a lot of us who are teachers ourselves to accept, but I do completely agree. Hopefully my listeners will as well. Well, the thing is, yeah, the classroom has a lot of advantages. I mean, one of the things about the classroom is it's a social place. People get together with the teacher, with the fellow students. Uh, it's a place where the teacher can uh, inspire the students, can push them, give them assignments. There's lots of things that can be done in a classroom, but you can't learn in a classroom. In my opinion, a classroom is a place where you mobilize people and encourage them or they encourage each other. Or, But the learning, language learning, has to take place outside the classroom. And the role of the teacher is to make the student independent and make the student so fired up or so afraid, <laughs> one of the two, <laughs> that they'll go and do something on their own. So if you want to learn and if you are motivated enough on your own, you don't need the classroom. Right. Unfortunately, that's a small percentage of learners. Most people need the classroom in order to be organized, disciplined, and stay on the task. The challenge for the teacher is to how to use that classroom effectively so that for every hour in the classroom, the student puts in three outside the classroom. Okay. Well, perhaps we can expand on this a bit. Mm -hmm. um, what advice do you have for teachers who perhaps agree with these seven misconceptions and are trying to structure their classrooms in a way that doesn't demand immediate output, isn't relying on testing and memorizing grammar rules and all these things? Um, you know, it's hard for me to say because I have not taught in a classroom. However, when I see the results of classroom instruction, and I often quote this extreme example, in uh, New Brunswick here in Canada... New Brunswick is a bilingual province. One-third of the population speaks French. Uh, in the English language school system, they have French. 30 minutes a day for 12 years. And they surveyed the graduates after 12 years, and they found that the number who could achieve what they called an intermediate level of oral proficiency in French was 0.68%. Wow. 
after 12 years of 30 minutes a day, 0.68% achieved an intermediate level of oral proficiency. They might just as well not have bothered. Right. Because I'm sure that number would have done it anyway. There's a Center for Applied Linguistics in the United States that did a survey on the impact of instructional hours on uh, immigrants learning English. And, I mean, in some cases, it went down. Now, it didn't go down because of the classroom. It went down because the classroom is irrelevant. And over a period of time, people will improve in their English. And if they had tracked other factors, like where does the person work? Does he watch videos at home in his native language or in English? Uh, who are his friends? All of these things, how, what is his attitude? All of these things would have had a much bigger impact than classroom instructional hours. So I think the teacher has to begin by realizing how relatively ineffective the classroom instructional hours are from an instructional point of view. Okay, so what's the classroom for? The number one goal of the teacher is to motivate the learner. And the number of people who will really improve is limited. You want to increase that number. The number that will really improve are the ones that are motivated. How do you get them motivated? I mean, I think if I ran a classroom, I would do what we do at Link. I would have either individual students or groups of students choose what they want to learn from. Choose content to listen to and read and spend most of their time with content that's of interest to them. Maybe you do it in groups. Here, groups of five. Here are ten subjects. Divide yourselves up. Go to the subject you like. Listen to that. Read about it. And then work on vocabulary. It's words over grammar. You need words. The grammar can come later, in my opinion. Once you've got enough vocabulary that you can actually say something, and say it wrong a few times, it doesn't matter, or don't say it. Just listen and read. If you have enough words, you can understand what you're listening to and reading. Listen, listen, listen. And eventually you'll want to speak. So I think I would have more freedom in the classroom, and then groups can talk amongst themselves about the subjects that they're studying. Uh, if they're saving words and phrases as we do at Link, they can exchange lists of words amongst each other. Uh, they can write using these words. Uh, but I would break it up in that way. If they're interested in sports, if they're interested in gossip, movie stars, whatever, just let them get at the language. There shouldn't be this requirement to cover certain items on the curriculum. All right. Um, so getting back to the, the seven points here, uh, number six, you need to speak in order to learn. Yeah. Um, I mean, at some point you have to speak. Now that's the goal. Everyone wants to speak. But you can go a long time without speaking. And in the early stages, I think it's more productive to do a lot of listening, and especially initially repetitive listening, and a lot of listening and reading to build up your vocabulary so that when you go to speak to someone, you actually have some words that you don't just say, my name is so-and-so, it's a sunny day today, over and over and over again. There come a point where you have so many words that, that you're ready. Now you want to speak. At that, that point, then you need to speak a lot because you've accumulated this vocabulary. You've got this tremendous potential ability to speak the language. You're going to speak with lots of mistakes, with lots of hesitation. You're going to have trouble finding your words. Now you need to get out and speak. But that point is not right at the beginning. That point is at some point later on, which will vary with the learner and with the language, but it could be six months later, it could be 12 months later, whenever you're comfortable. And there shouldn't be, in my opinion, this pressure to speak, and nor do you need to speak. And a lot of learners, they're lazy. They say, oh, I just want to have a conversation. Well... Even in that conversation, if you're not very good at the language, the most useful part of it is when you're listening to the native speaker because you don't have much to say if you don't have enough vocabulary. People sort of say, well, I'm embarrassed to go out with people who all speak Chinese. I don't understand. 
You don't have to speak. Just sit there with them. Pick up a little bit here, a little bit there. It's good for you. I think as long as you can put aside that desire to know right now everything going on around you. That's the key thing. People want to know right now. You can't know right now. They always say a language learner has to accept uncertainty. The next one was, I I would love to learn, but I don't have the time. And we hear that all the time. Make the time if you're interested. You make time for other things that you like to do. But that's really where the iPod MP3 players come in. Because when I was learning Mandarin, I had these great big open reel tape recorders. And today I carry a little thing with me that has hours and hours and hours of stuff on it that I replenish every day. So there's no excuse. Uh, The main activity is listening simply because it's so portable. You can have it with you everywhere. And I listen an hour a day. 15 minutes here, half an hour there, I get in my hour. So you have the time if you want to and if you go about it properly. All right. Well, I'd like to change gears a little bit now and get some input on learning Mandarin specifically. All right. Well, the first thing is to not allow yourself to be intimidated by the language. Mandarin is in many ways easy. Uh, I think the basic pronunciation of the sounds is easy. The tones is another issue, but the basic making the sounds is not difficult. The grammar is extremely easy. The uh, way words are created, the way the vocabulary is created in that the different characters are put together in different combinations to, to, uh, to mean different things, it's very rational. It's very efficient. So the vocabulary accumulation is very easy. So there are a lot of things that make Mandarin easy. You know, I think if people are, are, have convinced themselves that Mandarin is difficult, that's a major obstacle. I remember when I went to learn Cantonese, and I had somehow had it in my mind that there were nine tones that kind of kept me intimidated. Until someone said, forget nine, six is good enough, and if you get them wrong, it doesn't really matter. So I forgot about the problem. I just went in there and I learned it. So uh, the first thing is to not be intimidated. The second thing is, I think when you first start out, of course, you're going to use pinyin because it's impossible, and you have to have something to read that represents what you're listening to. So, But as quickly as possible, you should get into the characters, and you have to find a system to, to learn these characters. Now, there is the HISIC system. I didn't use that. Uh, many people swear by it. Uh, I had my own system. I would simply uh, start it out with 10 characters a day and eventually worked up to 30 a day. And I would take one and I get one of these exercise books that Chinese school children use with the squares. And I would write the character, you know, out by hand 10, 20 times and then put it over on the next column and then pick up the next character and do the same and put it over one column. So before I had done two or three characters, I'd run into the first one again. So it was kind of like a primitive spaced repetition system. And, uh, and so I would do that. But there's all kinds of spaced repetition systems, flashcard systems out there. Find one and work on your characters. And work on characters that come from texts that you are learning. Don't learn them in isolation. You'll never have a chance. And also don't get discouraged that you'll forget them. Like It's like learning vocabulary. I assume that if I did 30 a day, I would, I would forget about 60% of them. Uh, and then I would relearn them and relearn them and relearn them. So, and do them every day. You have to do characters every day. And I learned 4,000 characters in eight months in combination with my reading, but I did them every day, and I read every day. And so you've got to combine it with reading. You can't just do it as an isolated exercise. So that's with regard to characters. With regard to tones, of course you're going to try to remember what tone an individual character is, but it's very hard to do that. It's like trying to remember whether something is masculine or feminine or neuter, German. So at some point, you have to let go, and you have to try to imitate 
the intonation. Listen to it, repeat it, imitate it. And just feel confident that eventually you'll get better. That if you're hitting 20% correct tones, it'll eventually become 30 and 40 and 50. And don't be discouraged. And just keep at it, listening and imitating, listening and imitating, and it'll gradually get better. For more tips, tools, and tech for mastering any foreign language, go to languagemastery.com.